This is TechCrunch. This episode is brought to you by ShipStation. You know, some things take a lot of work, like sending little robots to far-off distant planets. And just as that's challenging, so too is running a successful e-commerce business, especially when there's so much to do. So I want to introduce you all to ShipStation. Now, I love using ShipStation because of its easy-to-use dashboard, which makes managing orders and printing labels a breeze and super smooth. Oh, and the customer service is just out of this world. It's exactly what you need to help grow your business. Sign up for your free 60-day trial at ShipStation.com slash technews. That's ShipStation.com slash technews. You're listening to TechCrunch Startups. Sequoia shares wisdom with Disrupt San Francisco Battlefield competitors and Startup Alley Top Picks by Ned Desmond. Last Tuesday, the teams competing in Startup Battlefield at Disrupt San Francisco, as well as founders chosen as top picks in Startup Alley, visited Sequoia Capital's office in San Francisco for a discussion with partners Jess Lee, Roloff Bota, Mike Vernal, Alfred Lynn, and James Buckhouse. The following is a partial transcript of the session, which was moderated by Buckhouse, the design partner at Sequoia. James Buckhouse, we partner from idea to IPO and beyond, but it's partnering at the idea stage that we love the most, that moment when anything is possible. And it's happened throughout Sequoia's history. YouTube incubated in our office. Dropbox was an unreleased demo. Stripe didn't have a single line of code. Apple was just two dudes named Steve, and so our favorite place to be is in the earliest moments. We're not here tonight to share with you lessons of our great wisdom on how company building ought to go. We're here tonight to say that we understand how hard it is, and the three partners that you've got here to talk with tonight, Roloff Bota, Jess Lee, and Mike Vernal, are people who have actually been in the trenches building companies themselves. Customers James Buckhouse Great companies like Apple, Amazon, and Zoom all have this one thing in common, customer obsession. That's an easy thing to think about when you already have a billion customers and you already have a bunch of money. But what do you do when you're at the pre-seed stage and you want to be customer-obsessed, but you don't even have a product yet, let alone any customers? How do you even begin? Jess Lee. I think at the very earliest of stages, all that really matters is product market fit. A common mistake we see is that a founder is only obsessed with the product and then goes on to think, I have my product, let me go find a market that works for this, when it should actually be the other way around. You should look at the market first and then get to know the customers in that market by doing customer research. There's a great book by Erica Hall where she discusses how to ask the right questions to customers in order to really understand their pain points, their motivations, and their needs. That's a hallmark of some of the best companies that we've seen, even at the earliest stages. They spend a lot of time talking to customers and understanding what they want. Something we at Sequoia like to recommend when we work with seed and pre-seed stage companies is to actually take the time to write down a set of customer personas. Who are your prototypical or your archetypes of different types of customers? In the very early days, you might think, I know the customer, I can remember this, I don't need to write it down. But as soon as you add one new team member who maybe isn't as familiar with your customer, a lot of things get lost in translation. For my company, Polyvore, which was in the women's fashion space, I had a lot of engineers on my team who were men and didn't understand women's fashion very well. 
I would always beat my head against the wall wondering why a feature they designed didn't quite make sense, and it's because we did the personas exercise a little bit too late. It made me wish we'd done it earlier. Once we had three very clear personas, I started to notice everything ran more smoothly. I found whether it was the sales team or the engineering team, people started to clearly communicate the idea of what our customer really wanted. People made better decisions at all levels. That's why at Sequoia we always encourage even our earliest stage companies to write their customer research down immediately, way before they think they need it. Product James Buckhouse How does an early stage startup make sure they're on the right track and building the right product? Mike Vernal The key thing to me is actually not being data-driven. It's much more about being hypothesis-driven. The problem is people think about product as art, but I actually think of product as being equal parts art and science. And I think the science part of it, which is really important, especially at an early stage, is being clear about what your hypotheses are, what you think is going to work, why you think it's going to work, and really sort of pressure testing that on a logical level. And if you're able to, actually pressure testing it with real data. One of Jess's techniques, which I think is great, is the notion of fake doors. If you want to know whether something's actually going to hum in the market, whether people are going to care about it, build a landing page for it, build a sign-up button for it, run a bunch of ads for it, test a bunch of different marketing copy, and see if people actually want the product. I've seen a bunch of companies use this to great effect. I think that in general, the mistakes people make with product is, one, being too artistic and not scientific enough about things, and then two, to Jess's point, the most important thing before you have a product is finding product market fit. Usually, finding product market fit in a category is a function of two or three important things. Identifying those important things and testing them to get clarity around that first, then designing the full product, is way better than just starting with a masterpiece and then slowly painting over and over the masterpiece until you get to something that is great. James Buckhouse For enterprise companies, Roloff, can you take a little bit about the sales-ready product and Templeton compression approach? Roloff Bota. If you go to our website and search for Sequoia Sales Ready Product or Templeton, you'll find very useful content that we put together. The insight came from one of the best leaders that we've worked with in a variety of companies who argued to not just go for an MVP, a minimal viable product, if you're building an enterprise company, but what he termed a sales ready product or an SRP. The difference is that a minimal viable product just gets over the hurdle but doesn't convince your customer to jump out of their seats and buy your product. When we invested in Cisco in the late 1980s, the first product they shipped had so many bugs it didn't work. But the product solved such an important need for the customer that they came back to Cisco and asked if they could fix it since they needed the product to work so badly because there was a fundamental problem in trying two networks at the same time. And that, to me, was a sales-ready product. You've got something that, even if it's not perfect, really solves your customer's pain point. And so to condense the whole theory behind this, spend a little bit more time, probably another three months, maybe another four or five months, from when you would otherwise ship an MVP to ship an SRP. The reason it matters for an enterprise company is that your sales organization will be so much more effective. Your sales team will ramp up a curve far more steeply, and you'll get sales momentum much, much faster if you sell an SRP. Culture James Buckhouse 
I'm going to do something a little bit unexpected here and call on Alfred in the back. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like at Airbnb, where they started with culture very early on? Alfred Lynn. Brian, Joe, and Nate came and visited Zappos, where we offered tours to see what the culture was all about. Alfred was COO of Zappos. At Zappos, we started writing down our core values a little late when we were at about 300 people, and I told Brian, Joe, and Nate that that was too late. After that trip, they went back and wrote down their core values before hiring their first employee. They knew that they had to create a new category. Home sharing wasn't something that people really thought about, and so they needed people who were willing to champion the mission, and that was one of the first core values that they wrote down. Buckhouse. Oftentimes, people think that culture is the thing you do later on, once your business has grown large and suddenly you have a lot of people. But that's not true. Culture matters a lot more than people think, and it matters earlier than people think. Jess, can you talk about your framework on core values? Jess Lee. Well, this is something we spend a lot of time on with seed and pre-seed companies who think, oh, I already know my culture. I'll wait to write it down later. But it's important to get it right up front. We encourage people to not pick too many core values. Generally, you want a framework that's a core value and the behaviors you want that exemplify that core value. And most importantly, you need a story. You need some legendary anecdote or example from inside the company that really brings the core value to life. To use Airbnb as an example, one of its core values is to be a serial entrepreneur. The reason it's serial with a C is because at the time, Airbnb was running out of money. They weren't sure they had product market fit, but they went to the Democratic National Convention to try the Airbnb idea when they were down to the wire in terms of money. In order to just get the word out about the business, they made boxes of cereal that said Obama O's and Captain McCain. It's a good example of rolling up your sleeves and doing whatever it takes to get your business launched. Somehow they actually managed to generate revenue that they put back into the business. The really memorable part of that is the serial anecdote. Whatever it might be at your company, make sure that the lore lives on. That's really what brings culture to life. It's not just the value itself. Buckhouse. Roloff, can you talk a little bit more about the culture at PayPal in the early days? Bota. There are a couple of elements in that. One is this idea of intercept versus slope. For those of you that are fans of math or science, it comes naturally, but sometimes you get to hire people who have a high intercept. They have a lot of experience. In our case, we needed to hire people who knew a lot about financial services because we, as the early young team, didn't. You hire people with intercept, but then you want people with slope, people who are going to learn very quickly. And at the end of the day, part of what made PayPal successful was that we had a good slope and we learned very, very quickly. Our culture was very hard-working. We faced a bit of a crunch in June of 2000. We'd raised a bunch of money during the dot-com era, and then we were sitting with seven months of runway and no revenue, burning $10 million a month. It was a you're-all-in culture. Management meetings were on Saturdays because that's the kind of sacrifice we were going to make as a team to get to the other side. Culture was really important to the success of the company. We had a strong bond between us as team members because we were in the trenches. We had to figure out how to make this business work when the odds were against us and the press had given up on us. Most people on the outside are going to think that you're going to fail. Expect that, 
Don't be surprised by that. Draw strength from that and rally your team around your cause. You should ignore that kind of feedback. Leadership James Buckhouse How do you discern a strong founding team? Roloff Bota My favorite, especially with companies at the seed stage, is to have no slides and to have a conversation with you about your business. What I find compelling is the more I dig, the more excited I get, because your depth of knowledge of understanding the problem that you're trying to solve shows itself. There are a lot of people who start companies for the wrong reasons, and they have very superficial knowledge. So as soon as you start to pressure test it, it's clear that there's no depth. The founders who are the best are the ones that are so motivated to solve the problem they're working on, they've researched everything. You would have found a simpler solution to the problem if you could, and you didn't. That inspired you to start this company. And I ask you questions. You just have this depth of knowledge. You've thought about it so many levels deep. Those founders are the ones that keep coming up with new ideas, and that's why their imitators don't do so well. We see this in our industry. You come up with a great idea, TechCrunch writes about it, everybody around the world reads about it, and now you've got 15 competitors in other countries going after what you're doing. But guess what? They didn't have the idea. You did. Since you had the original idea, you've thought about it more deeply, and you can iterate faster than they can. James Buckhouse. Jess, how about you? What do you look for to discern a strong founding team? Jess Lee. I do agree, and I think different investors look for very different things. There's probably a notion of founder-investor fit to some extent. For me, I especially appreciate a unique insight and depth of understanding of that customer and that market. But on top of that, the other thing I think about is grit. I think that being a founder is so hard. I felt like I was on the struggle bus the entire time. Either we weren't doing well, which was a struggle, or we were doing really well and then we were in a state of hyper growth, and that's also really hard. Your job changes underneath you every six months. Because even if you're successful, everything that used to work for you as the CEO or founder is now broken because your team is now 50 people instead of 10. What's driving you to either solve this problem or just driving you in general? Because it's just not easy, and folks who give up too easily or came into this because they thought being a founder was going to be really cool, it's not that cool all the time. So I look for that. Sometimes it shows up in the form being really mission-driven, and you have some burning desire to solve the problem. Sometimes it's just that you've been underestimated your whole life, and you're really mad about that, and you want to prove yourself. There are a lot of different ways to suss out grit, but that's one big thing that I look for. One thing I also like to see, and this is not a must-have, but I find very compelling, is if you're a good storyteller. I think that at the end of the day, you have to convince your family that you're not crazy for quitting your job to pursue this thing. You've got to convince early employees to join you when you can't pay them any money. You've got to convince early-stage seed investors to take a chance on you and give you money when there's nothing there yet. And you've got to convince customers. Being able to tell a good story, both taking something complicated and making it sound simple, as well as being able to influence and talk about why your approach is interesting and different, not just better than the competitors. I look for that as well. I think that's important. One area where I do disagree with Roloff is that I do prefer to see slides. I think it showcases your storytelling ability. I look at a lot of consumer companies and your attention to design and detail is also an interesting thing that you can suss out with slides. Buckhouse. 
How about you, Mike? Bernal, if you can't describe the business in a minute or two, then you need to keep iterating. Some bad meetings end up as the following. Someone comes in with 40 slides and wants to convey all of the knowledge in the 40 slides in excruciating detail. I think a couple of things. One is, many investors look at a lot of companies all day long, so they might actually know more about your space than you might think. Then, two, if you need 40 minutes to explain the business, marketing, and all of those other things, then for an investor meeting, that might work because you have that time scheduled. But for the random engineer you meet at a party who you want to get excited about joining your company, that's going to be really hard. The best pitch is when I'm two minutes in and I'm like, I get the business. This is a super interesting idea. Let's ask all these questions. The tough ones are 40 minutes of being talked at where there's no real interaction. Capital Strategies James Buckhouse Different types of companies need different types of capital strategies. How do you all think about how founders ought to think about their strategy for capital? Jess Lee It's really important to think about three things. First, what's the actual cash you need for your business? If you're a pure software business, you don't usually need as much as if you're building hardware or you're making physical goods. Second, what's the valuation that actually makes sense? True valuation when you become a public company, when you do M&A, is actually a function of your free cash flow or a multiple of your revenue. So just being able to understand in the long, long term what is likely 5, 10 year out valuation and then making sure you don't overshoot that just because you can. That's another first principle. The third thing is ownership. Doing the math, if you don't need to raise a lot of money, if you don't need to raise as many rounds, at the end of the day, when ideally your company is acquired for hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars or you IPO, what is your ownership at that moment? We have founders like Dropbox that when they went public, they owned nearly 40% of the company. So you have to think, would you rather have 40% of a $10 billion company or would you rather have 2% of a $20 billion company? That ownership at the end of the day is really important, so you have to think about those three things, which is a pretty complicated equation. It really hit home for me when my company, Polyvore, went through the M&A process, and it suddenly hit me that all the acquirers were not using funny VC math. They were looking at our cash flow and the multiple of revenue. Luckily, we hadn't raised that much money, as I'd wanted to keep as much ownership as possible. I was optimizing for ownership for the team. Because of that, we actually had a really nice outcome where everybody made money because we hadn't overraised since we didn't need to. We were a pure software-based, capital-efficient kind of company. But I think not enough founders think about that from first principles starting from the early days. They just look at who's raising what and how much they could possibly get. They want to maximize that, when in reality, it's not actually the right way to think about it. Rolaf Bota when you raise money, you're recruiting a partner. I see too many companies, especially seed stage companies, make the mistake of accepting funding from whoever shows up when that's probably the most expensive equity you'll ever sell in your business. You could potentially be selling it to people that are not going to be there six months or six years from now, helping you close a candidate, helping you wrestle with an important strategic decision, or helping you refine your business model. Those people aren't going to be there, so it's a recruiting decision. Take it seriously. It's also important to check their references. Your investor is going to do references on you. Why aren't you doing references on them? 
To hear everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them, check out the TechCrunch podcast, hosted by me, TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. Each week we go in-depth on two or three of the week's top stories from in and around the startup ecosystem, and I'll be joined by the TechCrunch experts who covered them. They tell us why the news is so important and what they think matters most to you, our listeners, whether you're just interested in tech or that's where you make your living. New episodes drop every Saturday morning, so be sure to subscribe to the TechCrunch podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.